This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Michael Wilson. I'm an associate professor in the UCSF Weill Institute for Neurosciences in the Department of Neurology. Um, my, I see patients who have uh, inflammatory conditions of the brain and spinal cord that includes uh, diseases um, where the immune system is overactive like multiple sclerosis but then also uh, diseases in which uh, infections can cause inflammation of the brain and spinal cord and my laboratory does uh, research uh, to better diagnose and treat these conditions. The title of my talk today is Solving Neurologic Mysteries Next Generation Approaches to Diagnosis. Um, as a disclosure, uh, my lab is a member of the UCSF Center for Next-Gen Precision Diagnostics, uh, which is a group of labs at UCSF who are launching uh, innovative new diagnostic tests. Um, we don't get any compensation from this, but we're all invested in making this a success. Um, so first, to define our terms. Um, so. Many of the conditions uh, that we do research on involve inflammation of the brain, the spinal cord, or the coverings of the brain and spinal cord called the meninges. And so when the meninges are inflamed, uh, we call that meningitis. When the brain itself is inflamed, we call that encephalitis. And when the spinal cord uh, has inflammation within it, we call that myelitis. And these are some images here of, of uh, this is a patient who had a meningitis. Uh, you can see these thin coverings uh, around what we call the brainstem or uh, have contrast leaking into them because the blood-brain barrier is disrupted um, because of active inflammation. So this is a picture of meningitis. Um, this is a patient who has encephalitis and these deep brain, brain structures uh, here are too bright on the MRI, again, suggesting that they're inflamed and swollen. Um, so this is a picture of encephalitis. Um, and then this is a, a patient who's a picture from the side of their spinal cord. And you can see here that there's some abnormalities within the spinal cord itself, again, with contrast agents leaking into it because of active inflammation. Uh, and this is a patient who has a, a disease that's causing myelitis or inflammation of the spinal cord. Sometimes patients can have more than one of these uh, areas inflamed. And so this is a patient who has meningoencephalitis. Uh, so this is someone who has inflammation of the meninges, again, around the brain and brain stem, but then they also have big areas of inflammation within the brain itself. Um, those terms are fancy terms to describe um, where the inflammation is, um, but they don't uh, tell us what the underlying cause is. And that's really going to be the focus uh, today is trying to uh, talking about new technologies that we've been developing to try and get at the underlying causes in different people. Um, encephalitis, it's uh, by itself is there are about 20,000 cases a year in the United States. Um, many patients who develop encephalitis 
um, become quite sick. And so even though it's a relatively small number of patients uh, compared to diseases like diabetes or heart attack or stroke, um, these patients um, are quite costly to take care of. Um, about 10% uh, die in the hospital, and uh, survivors have frequently have long-term disability like speech problems, memory problems, or difficulty uh, moving around. Um, a, a, a big focus of our research and uh, in the field is this problem of just encephalitis of unknown etiology or encephalitis of unknown cause, and it's a big problem. So about half of cases uh, never get a diagnosis. Um, one, a long-standing uh, study that was done uh, and led by uh, Dr. Carol Glazer called the California Encephalitis Project uh, enrolled um, at least a, a couple of thousands of, a thousand of patients uh, over the years. And uh, despite doing extensive testing, 63% uh, of cases went undiagnosed. So that's a real problem um, because it, it makes it impossible sometimes for physicians to, uh, to employ the best treatments for patients if they don't know what the underlying problem is that they're trying to fix. Um, part of the reason that we don't do such a great job with diagnosis is because just on the infectious side of the coin, um, there are so many different causes and each one of them is relatively rare. So testing for individual infections is hard to come by. There's well over 100 different pathogens that can cause encephalitis and they vary uh, widely based on um, where someone lives, the time of year it is, uh, like uh, mosquito-borne infections like West Nile virus are much more common in the summer than they are in the winter. Uh, the patient demographics, so some infections people are more likely to get um, based on certain professions um, or hobbies. Um, and then there are things like epidemics, which we're experiencing right now, where new infections can sweep through um, that were just never uh, anticipated before and for which we don't have uh, focused diagnostic tests. And so that just, again, highlights this emerging infection problem, which again is very timely. Um, there are many emerging infections uh, can invade the brain, some more than others. Um, and I have SARS coronavirus 2 down here at the bottom. Um, there's some uh, early data coming out now that although it's by far and away its biggest, uh, uh, the organs that attacks the most are primarily the lungs and to some degree the heart, um, there's, there's some early evidence that in rare cases, uh, this, even this virus that's a respiratory virus may uh, cause neurologic uh, complications. Um, to highlight uh, how, you know, again, how an emerging infection can cause uh, problems for diagnosis, uh, so Zika virus um, became epidemic in Latin America a few years ago, and uh, a paper that was published in 2016 suggested that Zika had actually been circulating in Brazil for 18 months before it was actually detected. Again, that wasn't because the doctors were not doing their job, but it was rather that Zika virus had only been uh, seen primarily uh, in Africa before. Um, so it just didn't make sense to send off a Zika virus test for patients who were having uh, flu-like illness. Um, so in addition to taking 18 months to just know that it was in, in uh, Latin America, um, it took another six months or two years total before people were recognizing uh, that Zika virus was a cause of uh, 
fetal brain abnormalities and also causing a, uh, an autoimmune disease of the peripheral nerves in patients called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Again, that was because one, Zika virus wasn't known to be circulating in Brazil, and also because Zika virus had never been linked with uh, neurologic disease before, so it didn't make sense uh, to, to look for that as a cause initially. Um, another reason why we do a poor job at times to make diagnoses in these patients is that um, although there are many infectious causes of encephalitis, we're now recognizing, as this uh, recent memoir that was published, Brain on Fire, um, that uh, many cases that we previously thought were infectious causes of encephalitis uh, are actually autoimmune conditions. Um, and this is a story of a young woman who developed a form of encephalitis that was just discovered about 13 years ago. Again, it's an autoimmune disease that used to be confused with a viral infection. It's very treatable. Uh, this woman recovered and, and uh, wrote a book about her experience, um, but the treatment for it is immune suppression, which is exactly what you don't want to do um, if you think that someone has an infection. So um, there's a real uh, tension here when, when seeing one of these patients in the hospital who are quite ill between um, trying additional antibiotics uh, or other antimicrobials or trying to do the opposite and uh, suppress the immune system on the chance that they might have an autoimmune disease. So the type of diagnostic testing that's been, uh, that is kind of conventional and is uh, the primary means that we use to diagnose infections is really takes advantage of um, unique aspects of particular viruses or bacteria or fungi or parasites, which is focusing on unique genetic sequences for one virus or another unique uh, antibodies that are produced to one virus or another, and doing, designing tests specifically to, de to detect those unique aspects of a, of a bug or a response to a bug. And that's what we call a candidate-based approach, meaning that the physician has to interview the patient, look at the um, MRIs, uh, do a physical exam, and come up with a set of hypotheses about what, they, what the person might have and then send off individual tests for each of those infections to either rule them in or rule them out. Um, and so that, that process can certainly work, um, but it's blind to things that the physician doesn't think of, either because it's a rare infection they're not aware of, or maybe it's an infection that no one's aware of or that no one is aware could be causing the symptoms that, uh, that are manifesting in that particular patient. So the approach that um, we've been taking here uh, is what we call a metagenomic approach, where instead of looking at unique aspects of a particular infection, we look at what's shared between us and almost all infectious agents, which is that we all have nucleic acid, meaning we all have a genetic code, either DNA or RNA. And metagenomics is simply just the analysis of all the genetic material in a particular sample, the sample that I get most excited about is spinal fluid. And with the uh, amazing advances in our ability to sequence things very cheaply and quickly, um, we don't need to go in with probes that are specific for a particular organism. We can just say, let's sequence all the genetic material on a sample and then ask, 
what what sequences come out that are not human, um, and then by doing that, we can we can try and figure out what the infectious or foreign agent is. And so, just to drill down on that a little bit more, um, so we take a patient sample. Uh, this is again spinal fluid. Sometimes it can be brain biopsy tissue. We extract the the genetic material from that tissue. And then we, we go through a series of steps to prepare that DNA or RNA for sequencing on one of uh, these tools um, that are made by various companies um, that can generate millions of sequences within a day um, and allow us to, to do analysis on those sequences. Um, in, in many cases, we'll get about 10 to 20 million uh, sequences um, for, for a given sample. And then the, the primary goal of, of the computational side of the, of the equation is, again, to get at the non-human sequences that are present in, in the sample. And so the first step is we take advantage of the fact that we know the sequence now of the human genome. Uh, we match the 20 million sequences up against the human genome, and anything that has a good match uh, gets set aside because for our purposes, it's not interesting. We want to look at the non-human sequences. So in this case, we go from, we were able, just after a first step, we're able to eliminate 92% of the data. And then we go through a series of additional steps with quality filtering, um, uh, eliminating just repetitive reads or low complexity reads, meaning sequences that just are strings of single letters like A's or T's. Um, and then we do some more human removal. And in this case, we go from 20 million sequences initially down to just a, a, a couple of thousand um, that we now know are high quality, non-human, um, and uh, not redundant. And it's those sequences that we then search in large uh, publicly available genetic databases to see what they best uh, match to. And so there's four kind of niches where this type of technology can really have an added benefit. So it, it's able to find, it's able to surprise you in many ways. So you can find novel, um, uh, novel infections that you're just not aware of that may um, have a weak match to, to a, a microbe that's already present in the database. Um, you may find an infection that people do know about. It's just not known to cause the, the clinical condition that you're um, seeing in, in a particular patient. You may find an infection that's known to cause encephalitis, but it's just so rare that people just um, aren't widely aware of it. And then since it's a test that can essentially find any infection, the hope is that a negative result will really help physicians move on to considering other possibilities in that patient, specifically thinking about autoimmune diseases and, and feeling more comfortable about immune suppression. So here are some, uh, some early kind of proof of concept cases that uh, we've published on. So the, this was a, a case of a young boy in Wisconsin um, who had a, um, was born with an immune uh, um, uh, condition where he didn't uh, fight infections well. Um, and when he was 14, over a period of months, he became uh, 
uh, he had progressive meningoencephalitis. Um, and although he was extensively evaluated for an infectious uh, condition, um, because all those candidate-based tests uh, came back negative, the doctors even considered in him that uh, he might have an autoimmune condition. Um, that did not. That strategy did not work. Um, and so we looked at his spinal fluid and found he had an unanticipated bacterial infection uh, called neuroleptospirosis that was actually quite treatable with a, a simple antibiotic. Another case uh, that we uh, worked up uh, was of a, a woman in her 70s in San Francisco who had developed uh, a pneumonia and then an, an infection in her eye followed by a raging infection in her brain. So she had a meningoencephalitis. Um, she had a brain biopsy. She actually had two. And this is a picture of a cross-section of a blood vessel in her brain. And you can see there are these large cells that are ringing the blood vessel um, and a lot of inflammation around it. So she had a condition that we call vasculitis, so inflammation of the blood vessels. And um, there was no diagnosis made with traditional testing, but on uh, sequencing, we found a number of sequences that matched uh, to an amoeba. Um, and when uh, we look back at the, the brain tissue um, and stain these big blue cells that are present around the blood vessel, um, they all uh, stain positive for a particular amoebic uh, infection. Uh, this was a case of a man, again, who didn't have a normal immune system, who developed encephalitis, so inflammation uh, in, in one of his temporal lobes, and then uh, recovered without a diagnosis. And three years later, uh, this is his MRI um, early on, and then his MRI three years later, you can see that this, this um, black area, the ventricle, the fluid-filled space, has gotten much, much larger over a three-year period. Um, uh, and we investigated him for a possible infection, and he had a rare uh, mosquito-borne virus, Cache Valley virus, um, that had been causing a smoldering infection in him over a three-year period. What was interesting, uh, one of the interesting things about this virus was that um, this man lived in Australia, and the virus had only been seen in, in primarily in North America. It turned out that um, when he became sick initially three, three and a half years prior, um, he had just come back from a rafting trip uh, in South Carolina. Um, so we think that he actually, uh, when he came back, he traveled, uh, he brought the virus with him to Australia. We don't have any evidence that it spread beyond him. But again, it just shows that um, this type of technology can find an infection that's not known to be in a certain part of the world. Um, and then lastly, this was another uh, case of a woman, very healthy, 26-year-old who had a chronic uh, meningitis. So she had meningitis lasting for over a year. Um, sequencing in her identified a rare fungal infection. Um, and uh, this infection is typically seen in, in uh, intravenous drug users. Um, and uh, that, was, uh, that part of the history came out after the uh, infection was diagnosed. Um, this this technology uh, has some challenges. Um, so there's just very little genetic material, whether it's human or not, in spinal fluid. Um, we're talking at the level of uh, picograms. 
Um, and uh, so that it's taken a while for the technologies to develop to be able to recover and uh, make sense of those tiny amounts of, of RNA and DNA. Um, as you can imagine, most of the material that is recovered is human. And, and so that occupies a lot of the data that you generate. And so um, the lab I did my postdoc in, uh, Joe DeRisi's lab, um, developed a uh, CRISPR-based tool, a technique to selectively deplete uh, uh, genetic sequences that are uh, human um, that are particularly prevalent in these uh, samples to be able to kind of gain up the signal on um, what microbial sequences might be there. A second pitfall um, when doing this type of analysis is that um, when we get spinal fluid, we do something called a spinal tap, um, which involves putting a needle through the skin in the lower back to get spinal fluid. And as the needle passes through the skin, it picks up, even though the skin's been sterilized, it still can pick up just dead uh, genetic material from, uh, from the skin, from bacteria on the skin. And so when you do sequence spinal fluid, um, it, it basically looks like everybody has bacterial meningitis because you see um, bacterial and fungal uh, sequences in, in all these sample sets. Because again, you're sequencing everything. Um, so we've done a lot of work um, to, do, um, uh, ana to develop analysis tools on the, anal on the computational side of the algorithm to um, be able to filter out the expected uh, mostly bacterial and fungal sequences that we think are not relevant to a disease and are not actually present in spinal fluid, but are rather contaminants from the skin and uh, from just uh, reagents that we use in the lab. You will see some papers out there and maybe even some news reports about a brain microbiome, uh, about the possibility that we, act, that we all have bacteria living in our brain. Um, look, there's only a handful of these papers, but um, and I think there we're concerned that many of the bacteria that have been reported there um, are actually uh, these environmental contaminants that are being confused for uh, organisms that uh, live in the live in the brain. We don't have good evidence for that right now. Um, so I'll just go through a little bit more detail on an, on another case. This was uh, most of the time when meningitis or encephalitis occurs, it's it's acute, meaning it just comes on over a few day hours to days, and then it resolves over that period of time as well. But sometimes you can have a a really chronic condition. So this was a 40 year old physician. Um, and she actually had 15 years of relapsing myelitis, so spinal cord inflammation, and arachnoiditis, which is a t uh, just um, focused area of meningitis. She'd been evaluated at a number of top academic centers around the country, and uh, her history, she had come to, she had, uh, immigrated to the U.S. from India at 22 years old. She lived in Arizona, New York, and Maryland. She didn't have a history of drug use and didn't have any known uh, animal, mosquito, or tick exposures. But then in 2002, she sudden, suddenly, uh, over a period of days, developed a back pain and malaise. She had night sweats. She lost her appetite. She had a headache and neck stiffness, all symptoms that are common when someone has a meningitis. When they uh, looked at her spinal fluid, instead of having zero to five white blood cells, she had 
in the hundreds, um, which is very abnormal. Her protein was elevated and the sugar level in her spinal fluid was decreased. This is all consistent with a meningitis and most suspicious for what we think of as meningitis due to a bacterial infection or mycobacterial infection like tuberculosis. So uh, this is her MRI, which shows some abnormality in the spinal cord and a little bit of that um, enhancement where the contrast is leaking into the meninges at the bottom part of the spinal cord. So because she's from India, um, there was a suspicion for tuberculosis. And so she got a partial treatment for that and, and did improve. Um, but then if four years later, um, at, right after giving birth, she got sick again with the same set of symptoms. Um, she got uh, some antibiotics right away, but never fully recovered, still had these low-grade symptoms for months. She got another spinal tap, which again was very inflamed uh, with a low sugar and a high protein. They even did a biopsy where they opened up the lower part of her spine to take a bit of tissue and just saw, again, inflammation, but no uh, particular organism. Uh, so they gave her another year of TB therapy, thinking that that was the most likely cause. Um, she got better, but not all the way. She still had low back pain and chills. And then after another uh, medical event in 2015, um, these same set of symptoms really revved up again. This time they tried treating her for a viral infection and gave her some steroids to just generally bring down inflammation. And for the next two and a half years, they were not able to get her off the steroids. Whenever they would taper them down, um, she'd have a flare of her symptoms. And she even had added on chemotherapy agents to keep the inflammation in check. And despite all these immune suppressing medications, she still had relapsing uh, symptoms for the next uh, two and a half, three years. So it was at that point that we got contacted um, to look at her spinal fluid. Um, she, when they did the spinal tap, she still had low-level inflammation. And when we did sequencing, we found that she didn't have sequences that matched to tuberculosis, but she did have many sequences that matched to a pork tapeworm called teniosolium, which is the cause of a, a disease uh, called neurocysticercosis. It's actually a common, so tinea solium, this pork tapeworm, um, these are the eggs uh, that you can see in, in uh, uncooked pork here, um, can, is, is a very common cause of, of brain infections around the world. It's a common cause of epilepsy, of seizures. Um, but um, despite it being a common diagnosis, it wasn't considered in her case because she didn't have the typical cysts that are seen in the brain on MRI. And so again, this is a great example of a common infection presenting in an uncommon way. Um, and so it wasn't the specific test for that organism had not been sent off yet. And the unbiased approach that we took where we just said what's in there um, uncovered this infection that she's now uh, recovered from. Um, so I've told you a lot of, about a bunch of um, uh, case examples, and uh, um, we've done some case series, um, and that this all built evidence to say that this was a, a worthwhile approach to pursue, and um, in collaboration with and really led by uh, Dr. Drs. Charles Chu and Steve Miller in lab medicine here, um, they did a 
clinical validation of this assay, so um, which was not uh, trivial. So um, this uh, normally when you're validating a new test for herpes virus or herpes simplex virus or for syphilis or for HIV, you compare it to how the old test for that infection worked. Um, and you say this new test, you know, works as well or better as the old one. It's a little more complicated to uh, compare a test that can find any infection um, and to figure out how to benchmark that. And so um, that's exactly what uh, Charles and Steve did um, in, in close consultation with the FDA and um, uh, published their uh, validation work uh, just last year. And so once this test was clinically validated, uh, again, this is, this is actually the, the first time this has been uh, validated for spinal fluid, um, a study was launched called the PADAID study, so Precision Diagnosis of Acute Infectious Diseases. And it was a multi-center study in the U.S. And the idea was to enroll uh, patients who um, were in the hospital with uh, meningitis and cephalitis uh, without a diagnosis. And just to give you the top line results, um, uh, there were 58 infections identified in these patients. Um, and of those infections identified, 13 were identified by metagenomic uh, sequencing alone. Um, 19 were co-identified by both sequencing and other tests that doctors sent off. And then another 26 were diagnosed by conventional testing. So I'll quickly go through those three buckets. Um, so in the, the sequencing only infections, uh, 10 had not been uh, entertained by the treating physician or um, had been missed by traditional testing. And those, again, included some surprising diagnoses, a, a mosquito-borne virus, St. Louis encephalitis virus, which hadn't been seen in California in 30 years in a human, um, hepatitis E virus, which, as, as the name suggests, normally a cause of liver uh, infection um, was identified in a patient. Uh, she'd actually uh, had a lung transplant six years before and had had mysterious liver inflammation ever since the lung transplant. Um, it turned out that uh, when the hepatitis E virus uh, was treated, um, it both resolved her meningitis, um, but it also uh, resolved the impending liver failure um, that she was suffering from. Um, so those were some of the highlights from the sequencing only infections. Um, and when we compared sequencing of spinal fluid to other what we call direct detection tests of spinal, on spinal fluid like culture or uh, PCR or antigen testing, uh, sequencing performed quite well. But I did tell you there were cases, there were a number of cases in which sequencing did not make the diagnosis um, and rather the diagnosis was made by other types of tests or in other types of tissues. So in 11 cases, uh, serology made the diagnosis, which means that antibody testing was performed. So those are what we call indirect tests where there's no evidence that the infection itself is present in the spinal fluid, the RNA or DNA, but there are antibodies that the immune system is made against it. And those help with the diagnosis. Um, and we'll talk a lot more about that in a second. Um, then there were other cases in which the bug was not present in the spinal fluid, but it was present in other tissues, like in an abscess, so the infection was diagnosed there. And then there were uh, eight cases in which the infection was identified 
in the spinal fluid, but at such low levels that uh, sequencing um, picked it up, but it was below what we call the reporting threshold for the test, and it was more uh, sensitively picked up by another type of test, like a PCR. And so this this leads into the other kind of the side of the coin of what we've worked on. So we know that direct detection tests, like where you're looking for the bug itself or its genetic material, um, can be uh, quite successful, um, but they have some disadvantages. So many neurologic infections um, can only stick around in the spinal fluid for uh, hours to a few days. And so if you do a spinal tap, um, not at quite the right moment, um, you may miss uh, that that microbe and miss the opportunity for making a diagnosis that way. And as I mentioned too, sometimes these infections are compartmentalized. So a patient may develop an abscess and they may not be leaking much of the, the microbe into the spinal fluid. And so you can miss an infection by only testing spinal fluid. And so there's a number of uh, viruses that we uh, that can cause encephalitis that we actually don't uh, uh, typically diagnose with direct detection testing. Those include West Nile virus and a number of other um, rare viruses, uh, but even common ones uh, that we think about, like rabies or the chickenpox virus, varicella zoster. Those are diagnosed typically by antibody testing. And so um, we've been wanting to. Uh, complement the sequencing approach to diagnosis with an antibody approach that's uh, also very comprehensive and doesn't require kind of having uh, a hypothesis about what the person might have up front. And so in collaboration uh, with Joe DeRisi, uh, we've been working for a number of years now to develop a sequencing compatible cheap, plate-based, robot-friendly, and scalable technology to um, really broadly look for antibodies against a number of viruses. The technology we built upon was first developed by the Elledge Lab at Harvard. And so this work uh, was really spearheaded by uh, Akshaya Ramesh and Ryan Schubert, um, who were uh, postdoctoral fellows working with me. And um, they built a, uh, a library of um, genetic sequences, about uh, uh, 500,000 of them, that um, tile across all vertebrate, tick, and mosquito virus uh, genomes. Um, and uh, we ordered those sequences to be, uh, we ordered them from a company to be synthesized. Um, and then we take those um, about 500,000 uh, short pieces of DNA, and those get stuck into a, another virus's genome, so something called a bacteriophage, which is a, a, a harmless virus that infects bacteria, and we can manipulate its genome. And so um, these bacteriophage, which look a bit like lunar landers, um, can we can insert a little piece of another virus's genome into this phage, and specifically into a region of its genome so that that little piece of DNA will get turned into a peptide, a protein, and expressed on the surface of that virus. So this, you could imagine, is a phage that's expressing a little bit of a piece of protein from West Nile virus or from, uh, from SARS uh, coronavirus. And we can take that library of phage that each express a little piece of another virus on the surface and combine it with a patient sample that has antibodies um, and just 
ask the question of which uh, phage uh, bind to the antibodies that are present in the patient sample. We can wash away the phage that are not bound and then sequence the genome of those phage that are bound and, and just ask which uh, viral peptides did the person's antibodies pull out. And so we, we applied this technology to a, an illness that's been um, making the news over the last few years. So this is something called acute flaccid myelitis or a polio-like illness that um, has been spiking in incidents uh, since 2012, uh, every other year in the U.S., um, and uh, these are children who are typically quite young, usually under uh, five years old, um, who um, get a, a respiratory illness and then a few days later suddenly become limp, limp in uh, one or more limbs. And um, this is how we, we used to think of how uh, polio presents, um, but the, polio isn't present in the United States anymore. And so people have been searching for another potential cause. There's the, the leading uh, suspicion has been for another, a cousin of polio, another enterovirus. Um, but because we and others uh, have not been able to detect the enterovirus directly in spinal fluid from these children, there's been a, a concern that there may be some uh, other virus that's out there that's, that's being missed, at least in some of these children. Um, and so uh, we, we teamed up with the, the CDC, with the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and a number of, and California Department of Public Health and a number of academic centers to collect spinal fluid from children with AFM, with this polio-like illness. And we also uh, have uh, spinal fluid from kids with other neurologic diseases. And we basically ran this assay. So we um, incubated the spinal fluid from each of these children with this phage display assay um, that uh, yeah, rep has peptides, proteins represented with from thousands of different viruses. And we just said, in the children with this polio-like illness, um, which an what viral antibodies do they have in their spinal fluid that the kids without this illness um, uh, don't have? Um, and so the only viral family um, that was enriched in the kids with, uh, with this polio-like illness were the picornaviridae, uh, picornavirus, and specifically uh, enteroviruses. Um, so th these children, um, clearly had high levels of antibodies to enterovirus in their spinal fluid, whether they'd had enterovirus detected or not by PCR or by sequencing. So it really lent additional weight to this initial suspicion that enteroviruses really are uh, responsible um, for, for this illness. And uh, this technique also allows us to, to document where along this is an enterovirus genome, the different uh, proteins that make it up, and we can show specifically where along uh, the, the genome of the virus patients are making antibodies to. Uh, and this work was um, um, uh, also um, supported by another publication that came out uh, right around the same time. Okay, so now I wanna shift gears and tell you one last chapter here. Um, so I've, I've mentioned along the way um, that uh, um, some patients certainly have infectious causes of encephalitis and meningitis, but we also recognize that a number of patients who we think have an infectious cause of 
brain inflammation actually don't. Um, and so um, we've been, uh, again, working uh, um, to, to develop broad-based tests to look for autoantibodies, so antibodies that target um, our uh, brain tissue or spinal cord tissue and cause these diseases. And uh, a recent, recent study actually suggests that uh, autoimmune causes of encephalitis are at least as common as, as infectious causes. And there's a number of these now. There's at least uh, 20 to 30. The number of uh, antibodies that um, we know can cause these diseases keeps growing. Um, these are just three of them here. Um, and the traditional methods for finding these antibodies, uh, one is to take a, a brain slice from a, a rodent, like a mouse or a rat, and to see whether the antibodies in human spinal fluid um, bind to anything in that brain tissue, suggesting that there's some attack of, of a brain protein. Um, that's That um, technology is helpful. It tells you that there's probably something going on, but it doesn't tell you exactly what uh, the protein is that might be targeted. There's a, a powerful but kind of low throughput method called immunoprecipitation mass spectrometry where you can uh, try and identify the specific proteins and we definitely do that. But again, it's, it's a, a, a low throughput technology. And so um, again, uh, we've taken a phage-based approach um, and the, um, the kind of overall name for this technology is programmable phage display. Another term that's used is FIPSEQ or phage immunoprecipitation sequencing, which was uh, initially developed by a, a laboratory at Harvard. Um, and uh, taking a page from uh, their work, uh, Brian O'Donovan, shown here as a graduate student, designed another phage library um, in which uh, instead of uh, um, designing viral proteins to be expressed on the surface of these viruses. Uh, he designed a library in which human pro pieces of human proteins are expressed on the surface. And so I'll tell you about a, a case in which we use that technology. So this was a, a patient that I saw in clinic a few years ago. Um, he's a 37-year-old right-handed man. He'd had a history of testicular cancer a few years before, but um, had done very well. Um, and he, when I first saw him, he'd had nine months of vertigo um, that worsened uh, and about five months before I saw him, and, and it had been complicated by uh, constant double vision. Um, he felt like he was constantly walking in a canoe. Um, he had a tremor in his right hand, and these symptoms were so bad that he'd had to stop driving, he'd had to stop working. He had uh, twin infants at the time, and he couldn't bend over to pick up his uh, children without uh, falling over. He'd had a spinal tap, which also had inflammation, so the number of cells was increased, not to the same degree that we saw in the chronic meningitis patient, but definitely not normal. And he also had evidence that he was making extra antibodies in his spinal fluid, um, and the question was, what, what were those targeting? He had a brain MRI and it was largely normal, except for a small area of abnormality um, in an area called the brainstem and cerebellum. And it's exactly, this is exactly the location of the brain where if you have inflammation, you will get uh, significant imbalance and eye movement problems. So it ex the location fit with um, the symptoms that he was having. So um, because 
this because of his cancer history, because of um, you know he didn't have fevers and and um, there were other tests that suggested he didn't have an infection. There was a worry that he might have one of these autoimmune conditions, and some of these can be uh, stimulated by a history of cancer. And so um, we attempted to just right away suppress his immune system with steroids. He got initially better, um, but then had to transfer his care because he had lost insurance. And over the next year, uh, uh, was given multiple other diagnoses, including multiple sclerosis, um, and then a concern when he didn't improve um, and actually continued to get worse that he might actually have a brain tumor. Uh, and this is a picture of his MRI about a year later. And you can see again in this brainstem area that on one side of the brainstem is slightly larger than the other. And when things get bigger in the brain, we worry about tumors. It turned out this was not a tumor. This was a consequence of just chronic damage to this part of the brain. Um, and actually, this was due to, due to inflammation. And so while he had transferred uh, to a, a different insurance, um, we were still working on his spinal fluid in the lab, and this is what we found. So this was work, again, uh, uh, started by Brian and then uh, um, really spearheaded by Callie Mandelbrem and in collaboration with Joe DeRisi, um, uh, using this phage technique, um, there was a clear antigen or uh, target of the antibodies in his spinal fluid, which is some uh, protein called Kelch-like protein 11. And we confirmed this in a number of ways. Um, and what was interesting was, you know, you, you, we were very excited to find that this, uh, this uh, protein in this, in this patient, um, but we didn't know how significant this was beyond his particular case. Was he going to be a snowflake, a unique case, or was this going to have imp implications for other patients with these kinds of diseases? So with some serendipity and uh, collaboration with um, uh, Sean Pittock and Div Dubay at the Mayo Clinic, it turned out that they had been collecting patients who also had a history of testicular cancer, who also had a history of severe imbalance and vision changes for about 20 years. And all these patients had a very typical staining pattern on the brain slice that I mentioned earlier. So the, and that it was actually called sparkles. Um, the, the, the proteins that lit up kind of appeared like they were stars in the night sky. And so they've been collecting cases like this for years, um, but um, did not know the, the actual protein being targeted. So we told them about uh, this Kelch-like protein 11, um, and they looked to see in their cases whether that was the target in, in their uh, men with these symptoms. Um, and it turned out they all had the same target. So now instead of this being an antibody associated with the disease in one person is associated with the disease in 13. Um, and now it's uh, well over uh, 50 patients with this. Um, so, um, so we think this is the second uh, autoimmune cause of encephalitis in men with testicular cancer. Um, and uh, as these diseases go, um, it's, it's, it's a rare disease, but not uncommon for these types of uh, conditions. So just to conclude, um, the, on the sequencing side, this is a test that's now clinically available at UCSF. It's, uh, as to my knowledge, it's still the, uh, UCSF is still the only 
uh, place in the country with a clinically validated uh, metagenomic test for spinal fluid. Um, we've, we, as a, a large group, have shown that uh, CSF sequencing increases diagnostic yield in patients with meningitis and encephalitis. And some things that I didn't uh, get into more detail on is that in addition to finding an infection, um, because we can sometimes recover the whole genome of a particular virus, we can get a lot more information beyond just saying, oh, there's this infection there. We can uh, track, we can say, we can make, um, uh, we can make uh, guesses as to where the particular virus came from, whether it has, or a bacterial, uh, um, bacterium, what um, particular resistance mutations it might have to, to certain antibiotics, um, and, uh, and a number of other analyses that can be done uh, downstream. Um, I also told you that sequencing, like any test, is not perfect. Um, there are cases in which it might miss something, um, and so that's why we've been uh, hard at work at trying to develop these uh, Plan B type tests, these antibody tests, um, to do uh, to, to be also able to find viral infections and even uh, new autoimmune diseases. Um, phage display is one technique that I've told you about. It's very exciting. Um, it's not perfect, um, and so uh, we're in, with this technology, we're looking at pieces of proteins. Sometimes these antibodies. Um, really uh, need to have a whole uh, natively folded protein um, to be able to be pulled out. And so uh, there's additional work going on now to, to complement the phage display technologies um, to find additional uh, antibody targets. Uh, and, and I just wanna acknowledge that uh, this, this work uh, is a result of many uh, groups at UCSF, uh, my lab, Joe DeRisi's lab, uh, Sam Pleasure uh, is also in neurology, does a lot of the uh, brain slice staining uh, with us. Uh, Charles Chu and Steve Miller have been real pioneers in this effort, and, and we've been very fortunate to get um, a lot of philanthropic and, and uh, governmental support uh, for this work. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.